0: Good morning to you. This is Mike Smith and we start today with the highway protests and blockades. We've seen snarling Metro Vancouver traffic, fouling rush hour commutes. It happened again yesterday. Anti-logging protesters blocked busy Highway 1 causing traffic chaos for commuters one protester arrested for chaining himself to a barrel in the middle of the highway and the protesters are vowing to strike again they say they will block more highways block more bridges but check this out the stakes are getting higher here for the protesters now police now for the first time seized their cars Police seizing impounding the vehicles of highway blockaders under BC's civil forfeiture law. And we've got an awesome panel standing by to talk about this. But first, have a listen to this report now from Global News reporter Richard Zussman. They are snarling traffic and triggering frustration. All in an attempt to stop the province from allowing old growth forest logging. But the action has come with unintended consequences.
1: Last Monday, they they decided to tow our cars, originally telling us that it was uh, just going to be held for seven days. But then we found out that uh, they were actually forfeited. So the, the government gets full uh, ownership of the vehicles now.
0: Those cars were blocking three lanes of Highway 1 traffic police towing them using the province's civil forfeiture rules okay let's discuss now with our panel both sides of it for you brent eichler on the line brent is one of the protesters he's been arrested several times i'm pleased to welcome him brent thank you for coming on hi
2: mike good to talk to you
0: thanks for doing this also on the line is chris sims canadian taxpayers federation on the other side of chris
3: hey thanks for having us
0: hey good morning to both of you brent let me go to you first you've been arrested how many times Oh, I've lost track now. Four or five. <laughs> you're not sure? Four or, fi- four or five? I think so. Yeah. Okay. I think I, I think and wh- someone told me you're on probation now. Is that correct? I'm on probation and I'm currently on day 21 of a hunger strike.
2: Okay. Why are you doing that? Uh, the, the demand for my hunger strike is a public meeting with uh, Forest Minister Katrine Conroy and... Uh, so far, no response from the NDP government.
0: Why do, you, why do you guys keep blocking these roads and highways and bridges? What are you trying to accomplish? Uh, well, we're trying to
2: have a legislative end to all old-growth logging in British Columbia. Not, not, as you said earlier, all logging, but all old-growth logging. It's a very precious ecosystem that must be preserved for the sake of future generations and for our own safety, security, and well-being.
0: Okay, don't you think you set your own cause back by by blocking highways, though, in the middle of rush hour? You just tick people off. Well, um, if you have a better idea, let me know, because uh, we've had petitions and protests,
2: and people have stood on the sidewalks holding signs for, if not hundreds of years, at least decades, and it's done nothing. Uh, Industry is perfectly pre- prepared to destroy the last of our old growth forests. Eighty-five percent of the people in B.C. want them preserved. So we need to do something, and we're doing the only thing we know that can be effective, and that is
0: proved by history. Chris Sims, what do you think of this?
3: Hmm, well, our issue clearly with the Taxpayers Federation isn't logging or not logging. Uh, and we actually have a lot of forms of protests that we engage in, uh, including petitions, letter-writing campaigns, and you know, protests that get media attention, Um, our main concern uh, with some of the things that have been going on for the past month is that a lot of average working people aren't being heard um, when it comes to being able to even afford to get to work, let alone get to work. Uh, We really want to see a reduction uh, in gas tax prices because I keep getting calls every single week from people who can't afford to fill up their cars let alone get stuck in whatever traffic jams. And so, you know, we, we take no position on, on the logging what issue. You,
0: what do you think, though, about people who would get stuck behind one of these blockades, maybe making them late for work or a doctor's appointment or something else? I mean, do you think that, do you think they're going to change their mind? Because That's a great so,
3: que- You know, it's a great ahead. question. I'd be really interested to hear what their MLAs are saying about this, uh, both <laughs> from the folks who are in the protesting camps who are trying to contact MLAs and the commuters who are stuck behind the wheel and not able to get to work. Uh, we do want accountable, responsive government. And so, you know, it'd be very important to hear from an MLA on this topic.
0: Hey, Brent, what do you think about police seizing the vehicles of road blockaders? This is the first time I, I think this has been done in B.C. under our existing civil forfeiture law, uh, the police seizing the vehicles of people blocking the road. Did they seize your vehicle or no? Uh,
2: no. Uh, okay. But, I, I, you know, I'm not a lawyer, obviously. I'm just an ordinary working person. But uh, to me, this seems like a, a misuse of that law. I think that law was meant to, to uh, take the proceeds of crime, and these are not the proceeds of crime. So I I don't know if this will stand up in court or not, but I think it's a a misuse of the law.
0: Okay, let me play a clip here, Chris. I'll get your thoughts on this issue about police using the civil forfeiture law to seize the vehicles of of roadblockers. You'll hear the voice here of lawyer Kyla Lee, who's been a frequent guest here on the show, also protest organizer Ian Weber here. Have a listen to this. It's meant
3: to prevent further crime from occurring. It's not meant to be a restriction
0: that's used on people's civil liberties.
1: Hopefully, this back this will cause a backfire effect that people will see the injustice.
0: Okay, I'm not sure it's going to backfire. I suspect that a lot of people who may be inconvenienced by these protests would cheer on the police and say, yeah, take their vehicles. Maybe not. Chris, what do you think?
3: I think, again, this gets back to accountable government. Uh, if if folks are concerned about this, and I would be if I were stuck in traffic, uh, then perhaps that we need to have a better committee system. I'll put it to you this way. If you take a look at the United States, it is not perfect by any stretch of the imagination. But they have hearings at the congressional level a lot more frequently and a lot higher profile than we do. But we have the mechanisms for it. Why aren't they holding hearings and committees That are already convened. They're already there in Victoria. They're already on the record and have witnesses and and listen to people with their concerns. And that way we're not dealing with these poor folks being stuck in traffic. It's, you know, I can't tell you how many times I've been hearing from people who can't afford to make ends meet. And the idea that now that they can't get to work and, you know, the the government should be more
0: responsive on this stuff. Talking about escalating highway blockades with my guest Brent Eichler. He is one of the protesters. Chris Sims, Canadian Taxpayers Federation. Brent, you mentioned you're on a hunger strike. You've been arrested five times. You're on probation. Are you? How far are you take this? Will you keep breaking the law? Will you keep blocking roads and bridges and highways? Uh, well, the movement is not going to stop. It's not just me, but uh,
2: the movement is not going to stop until our demands are met. And we're again, we're reflecting what the vast majority of BC people want, and that they want their forests to be protected. The scientists have told the government over and over, they need to do this, and they're not doing what needs to be done. Always throughout history, the only time there are positive changes in the world is when governments are pushed to do what is right from the bottom, from the working, ordinary people. That's what we're doing. We're not going to stop.
0: Yeah, I I go back to one of the previous points I made, though, that I'm not sure that Blocking highways is going to accomplish what you want to see accomplished. I think, if anything, it might set back your own cause. And well, you know, I don't think any government—I don't think any government is going to cave into roadblocks. What are your thoughts? Well, history
2: uh, says a different story. It, it has worked in the past. These kinds of disruptive actions have worked, and they—they they solved historic social and economic injustices. And that's what we're going to do.
3: OK, guys, just to offer, you know, Vancouver City Hall, you might remember a few weeks ago or maybe a few months ago, was considering a huge new tax on people's vehicles uh, who were parking within the city of Vancouver. We st- we we presented at the hearing. We had a huge letter writing campaign and they backed off. Even the mayor voted against this big new tax. And so, you know, there, there are methods.
0: All right, welcome back to the show. As we continue talking about environmental road blockades, Brent Eichler, my guest, he's been arrested four or five times for blocking roads. Chris Sims here as well. Lots of phone calls. Right to them, Brian and Langley. Hi, Brian, what do you think? Good morning, Mike. How you doing? Welcome I'm, to your guests.
3: So what I would, I would say to Brent, Brent, you did mention to Mike that if he has a better idea than being an irritant and blocking the highways, I have a great idea for you. You did state that the majority of British Columbians back you. So it's pretty simple. Why don't you form a political party and run in the election? Then you can do something when you're in power with everybody that backs you. Interesting to see how many votes you
0: get. Brent, Brent, what do you say to that? Uh, Well, what I say
2: to that is that scientists are warning us that we have a couple of years left before the world starts going into a very, very bad state. There's no time for political parties. It needs. We need to have people, ordinary people rise up. We are destroying the world. We're destroying the future of children. We're destroying our, our future prosperity and security and safety. We need to act right now. There's no time for that kind of solution.
0: Let's go to Steve on Vancouver Island. Hi, Steve. Go ahead. Hey, how you guys
4: doing? Hey, my question is, hey, Brent, when well, you guys are out there blocking the roads, how are you going to
5: feel morally if a first responder gets stuck behind your roadblock and somebody dies? And again, what's the legal issue on that? And my second statement is: if you guys want attention from Victoria, why don't you go block the entrances to the parliament buildings rather than uh, us people that are trying to commute? Brent, uh,
2: so we're a, we're a nonviolent civil resistance organization, so we'll we'll do any kind of well we'll consider. Different means of, of, of doing disruptive, nonviolent civil disobedience. So, those options are all on the table. Um, as far as letting emergency vehicles go through, we do that regularly. We've done that at every action. And uh, we have in the past talked to both police and, and uh, emergency services what, what to make happened, sure that happens.
0: What happens if someone is stuck in the traffic jam, like ten or twenty cars back? They're trying to get to a hospital appointment or a doctor's office or something. How do they get? How are they supposed to get through? There are ways to make sure people get through. Really, Chris? Yeah. Chris, you have any thoughts?
3: Uh, just that uh, we've been uh, a grassroots organization that is trying to uh, get the government to be have lower taxes, less waste and more accountability for 30 years. And letter writing, petition writing, you know, it, it does help and it does work. We've seen a reduction in gas taxes, for example, in Alberta and Ontario. And yeah. one of the main fights we've had is to reduce that. So there are ways.
2: Okay, Ash. Yeah, uh, if I could go, interrupt. Go uh, yeah, go ahead. If, if, if those methods did work, the the world wouldn't be in the dire situation that it is now. We have greenhouse gases going out of control. We have forests dying. We have coral reefs dying. We have the oceans rising. We are in a very, very bad state. Uh, uh, signing a petition is, is almost useless at this point in world history. We're on the verge of collapse. Let's go to We're Ash. soon going to have mass starvation and 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 hundreds of millions, if not billions, of climate refugees
0: all around the world trying to find a safe place where they can live. Ash in Vancouver on the phone lines. Go ahead.
4: Hi there. Brad, you know what else is
6: useless? You blocking the road, stopping us from picking up our kids from school. It's just
4: disrupting everyone's life. I was thinking, to if if these trees are causing the issue, start the GoFundMe page to uh, raise money to expedite
0: cutting these trees so we get it over with. But the problem is you're going to find something else to protest about because that's just in your nature, man. Okay. Okay. Brent, you know, a couple of callers have said, well, why don't you use just democratic methods to, to try and achieve your ends? Like, I imagine that the political party that closely matches your cause would be the, the Green Party. So, you know, if everyone agrees with you, if you were saying like the large majority of people agree with you. How come we don't have a Green Party government? Uh,
2: well, I, I I don't I'm not an expert in politics. I just know that the world's in a terrible state. I know I know that when you know the cod fishery collapsed in the in the early '90s. Up until that point, government scientists were warning the government that it was about to collapse, and they just kept increasing the the catch, uh, and then it just yeah. totally collapsed. And then 30 years later, we have no commercial fishery on the East Coast. That's what happens when you ignore the science and listen to the industry and allow government just to cater to that industry and not protect the people. We're about protecting the people's interests here. We need to save these forests. We need to stop greenhouse gas emissions. We have to solve these ecological problems. We will pay a huge price if we do not do that.
0: Okay, Rick on the line in Port Moody. Go ahead
4: taking my call. Uh, Brent, uh, Chris, uh, I mean, you guys are certainly uh, giving her today, and I, and I really appreciate it. You know, as a kid, I, mean, I shouldn't say a kid, in my mid-20s, um, I was very active in, you know, in the, the Clockwatch sound back then. I'm well into my 50s now. Claquot was a big thing, and I was involved, and... Um, You know, I I would be active, you know, there were different type of festivals and all of these different ways of raising money, but I never once blocked a road, and and Cockwatt Sound, as I recall, turned out pretty darn good. Uh, I just, I'm baffled at um, at just your approach, and and I'm thankful now that, you know, at least the police are, are starting to... Respond to your your, uh, actions in the way that they have, you know, as we've seen in Ottawa recently. I mean, I say, thank you,
0: thank you, you, Rick. Uh, Well, in Clackwood Sound, they did block logging access roads, and hundreds of people were arrested. Uh, Brent, you got thirty seconds here. Go ahead. Yeah, uh, well, uh, that was successful in one
2: specific location, but it didn't solve the problem. Here we are, decades later, still fighting the same battle because it could not be won in the forest. It needs to be won in the cities where the people are doing the people's will what they want us to do
0: all right welcome back to the show here we go now with our unaffordable housing market here the justin trudeau government trying to do something about it we had that two-year ban on foreign real estate buyers in the recent federal budget the trudeau government has also promised a house flipping tax so if you buy a property and then you turn around and sell it at a big profit less than a year later, you could be hit with a tax for doing that. Trudeau says housing should be seen not as a lucrative investment opportunity to make profit, but as a home for working families to own and live in. But take a close look now at the annual financial disclosures filed by Trudeau and his own cabinet ministers. Many members of Trudeau's cabinet own multiple properties. They own investment properties. They own rental properties, about one-third of the cabinet in that category. Among them, Federal Housing Minister Ahmed Hussein, who owns a second property that he rents out. Does that make them hypocrites? Well, let's discuss it now with my guest, Paul Kershaw from UBC, founder of Generation Squeeze. I'm very pleased to welcome him back. Hey, Paul? Thanks for having me. Thanks a lot for coming on. So when we see these revelations here about about one-third of Trudeau's cabinet ministers here have got like a real estate portfolio. They own multiple properties. What do you think of that? Well, I will confess to you today I find this a tricky interview um, because on the one hand I think this kind
1: of story is in no in no small part intended to kind of make us feel outraged and that risks further eroding trust in the world of politics. And uh, that part I find tricky because as someone who's worried about our housing system not functioning well, I know we can only fix it through politics, and so I don't want to completely erode people's trust in politicians when ultimately we need politicians to come through for us. That's one point I have. So I'm going to right. defend politicians right now and say, okay, there's nothing illegal about what they're doing. Right. Um, in fact, they're just representing the cultural context, and I want to come back to that, so make sure you ask me about it. About one in six Canadian homeowners already across the country own multiple homes, and it's probably higher than that because many people use companies to hide the fact that they actually are the beneficial owners. So we're seeing in cabinet a reflection of how Canadians are already treating housing not just as that place to call home, but also the good investment strategy, the good way to get rich. So that's my one, that's my sort of defense, but I also have a concern if you want to know about that. Well,
0: sure. What's your concern?
1: So the concern is that their practices are representing the root cause of our problem. That we have in Canada, you know, a lot of conversation about housing unaffordability. But that then masks that our that our country and certainly our province and certainly this region has a lot of support for home prices rising because many everyday Canadians are entangled in the the idea that they're banking on home prices to rise to contribute to their savings down the road. And, and we get used to, in Metro Vancouver, somebody like me, my home went by up by half a million dollars last year. It's hard not to be tempted by that. And so yeah. if we have our political leaders, part of that cultural context, it's not surprising that we're not getting to the root cause of the problem and saying, you know what? We simply don't want home prices to rise any longer and then organize every policy accordingly to achieve that goal.
0: Okay, Paul. As you mentioned, there's nothing illegal about owning multiple homes in our country. It's perfectly legal. As you mentioned, lots of people do it, including Trudeau's own cabinet ministers. So many of them own multiple homes. Uh, some of them own rental properties, so they'll have a second home that they rent out. Which I don't know. In some ways, maybe that's that's okay. I mean, obviously, we need rental, right? Like we need more rental properties. But then you've got the the flipping aspect, right? Like if someone is just using the using the housing market like their own personal monopoly board and they're just flipping properties to make a quick buck after in less than a year just for pure profit. Is that a problem? And should the government Uh-oh. do something about that?
1: Yeah. Absolutely. We definitely need to crack down on the flipping side of the equation. So it is good to see that this federal budget has a, uh, you know, a new plan that if you buy and sell within 12 months that you're going to, and you do that on your principal residence, you're going to now be facing a capital gains tax. Um, We got to make sure that it has the right teeth and we're going to have to monitor very closely Is 12 months, the right, the right threshold. Uh, Or are we just pushing people to hold on for a year and then a day later, they start going and doing the flipping It could be, though, that with rising interest rates now, that could be something that's not in the budget, but um, that will be part of the broader housing ecosystem that could help to slow down the the big borrowing to then bid up prices. And I'm hoping, we're really pleading and hoping that it will have a a deflationary pressure on our housing system.
0: Speaking to Paul Kershaw from UBC about affordable housing and property flipping, that property flipping tax been promised by the Trudeau government. Hey Paul have a listen to this now this is a, a famous exchange here between liberal mp talib nur mohammed yeah i knew you're going to do it oh, <laughs> you, you know it's just it's just too good not to play again so this is talib nur mohammed speaking to a reporter from ctv now remember now this is before the recent the last election and it turned out that talib nur mohammed like members some members of Trudeau's cabinet here he he flipped he flip some properties he'd flipped a lot of properties and it looked like he it looks like he made a, a ton of money buying properties and selling them he he did it a lot and then he was campaigning to to stamp it out like promising oh i'll bring in a law i'll bring in a tax so vote for me to stop me from doing this now, now, have a listen to this. So the CTV reporter here trying to trim him down, like how many properties has, his, has he flipped? How, how much profit did he make? Have a listen to this.
1: How much have you profited on those 25 in the past decade? I mean, I'm not, uh, you know, I think it's important to talk about, uh, I'm going to answer that question again, so I'm going to be sure. Yeah. How much have you profited on those sales? I, you know, when you ask... I'm going to give me a second to just make sure I have the right. um, Okay. So, sorry. Ask me the question again. Sorry. Yeah. How much have you profited personally or business wise on the sales of those 25 properties in the last decade? While I can't give you an exact number, what I can tell you is that it is by no means the number that has been put forward. But what I can also tell you is that I am absolutely committed to any and all measures that we have put forward that would... That
0: would apply. Oh, okay. And that would include an anti-flipping tax. So like, basically vote for me and I'll put a stop to what I've been doing. I'll tax myself. Stop myself from flipping all these properties. Paul, what do you think of that? Know, well, first off, <clears throat> party platforms are designed at the party level. And so this candidate,
1: uh, you know, was part of that platform. And I guess to some degree, let's give credit that uh, within just a few months of that election, we do see progress through the budget coming in to put in place, uh, something that's trying to deter the very flipping that this citizen before running for office was participating in regularly. And I guess I'm going to try and flip this in a, in a more hopeful way. Okay. These kinds of stories showcase to us. That we as citizens, via our politicians, are in charge of setting the rules for the housing system. We set that. We design the, the boundaries within which the market works. And if our policies, like a home ownership tax shelter or lack of policies that discourage flipping, if that's part of the rules of the day, then we shouldn't be surprised that we are incentivizing Canadians to treat housing not just like a place to call home, but also a way to get rich. And that is why you've had me on your show and sometimes people get angry with me and send me emails to F off and die when I say it makes sense then for us to change our tax policy, at least nibble around the sharpest edges to soften them so that we try and say we're not encouraging people to treat housing as this big way to grow our savings and encourage us to invest our dollars in other industries that are going to produce more productive jobs and grow our economy in a better way.
0: Okay, so let's talk about that home ownership tax shelter that you talked about. So, when you own a home and it's your principal residence, you own the home that you live in, when you sell that home, there is no capital gains tax on that if it's your principal residence.
1: Correct. correct. So here's right. how And you think there should
0: be, of... you think there should be.
1: No, I actually don't. But let me just describe the homeownership tax shelter. Okay, all right. So when you go at your job today, you're going to be taxed on 100% of the income you earn from your work. If you invest some of your after-tax dollars in the stock market, 50% of any return on investment will be subject to tax. Right. But if you're a homeowner and you're living in your principal residence and you have a wealth windfall like I did last year, half a million dollars – barely any of that uh, windfall will ever be subject to tax. And so the policy is signaling, hey, want a good after-tax return on an investment? Use housing as your investment vehicle. I think that it's too challenging, and actually we've kind of missed the opportunity to erode the principal residence capital gains tax exemption in its entirety. But I do think that those Canadians living in the most affluent homes You know, and I want to say affluence is like over a million bucks and people like everybody lives. But no, only about 12, 13 percent of Canadians live in a home over a million bucks. I do. Um, And I think we could ask people like me to contribute slightly more in the light of the fact we're gaining windfalls from our housing while we sleep. And we could then take pressure off people's income taxes, especially middle earners.
0: Right. So you would you would support like an annual tax on homes over a million dollars and then use the money for affordable housing, right? Yeah, we already have property taxation,
1: so everyone's familiar with that. I would suggest adding a bit of progressivity on the value of homes above a million, so a million below, no, no additional taxation, but on the value above a million, a little bit of progressivity, and that could uh, raise across the country about $5 billion a year. And, right. you know, that could create some really deeply affordable co-op homes, purpose-built rental homes. And then some of the winnings that come from rising home prices could use to help those who are being locked out of the housing system.
0: Paul, thank you for coming on today with your thoughts. I appreciate it. It's always a pleasure. Cheers. All right. Thanks a lot. Paul Kershaw there, UBC, talking about this unaffordable housing market. All right. Welcome back to the show. Now, let's talk about that recent B.C. cabinet minister pay raise, or at least that's what the B.C. liberals call it. They call it a pay raise. The government calls it a salary holdback, which they're, they're now canceling. And this has been controversial. Here's the deal with this. Under the salary holdback rule, if the government brings in a deficit budget, then BC cabinet ministers required to take a 10% pay cut in their cabinet salary. It was an incentive to keep the budget balanced. Now, the government is now dropping that provision, so cabinet ministers will get their full salary now, despite the fact that the budget is not balanced. We're in a deficit. Now, why is the government doing that? Well, they say, look, this would be unfair to people to cut the government spending just so cabinet ministers can balance the budget and pocket their salary. That would be unfair to the public that rely on government services. Okay, now we've got an awesome panel standing by and this to discuss. But first, have a listen to this. Now, you'll hear an exchange here in the B.C. legislature on this. This gets really fiery here. This is liberal MLA Todd Stone, and he's taking on the finance minister here, Selena Robinson. Have a listen.
2: How could the premier possibly justify providing himself and his cabinet ministers with a $20,000 raise?
6: Thank you very much, Mr. Speaker. Well, the, the deficit holdback, which is what the member is referring to, it's a deficit holdback. This measure, Mr. Speaker, it's sent the wrong message. What it says is that it prioritizes Members austerity come to order, please. and cuts Members. over investment, Mr. Speaker. Even in an emergency, Mr. Speaker. It forces government to balance books on the backs of British Columbians. And if we followed that holdback provision, Mr. Speaker, we wouldn't have supports for business. We wouldn't have vaccination clinics.
2: Members, We've made required.
6: unprecedented investments over the last two years, Mr. Speaker, to support people ministerial responsibility. However, Mr. Speaker, it still remains with a holdback measure to ensure that ministers stick to their budgets.
0: Okay, let's discuss this now with my guests. I've got Selena Robinson on the line, British Columbia's Minister of Finance. You just heard her speaking there in the legislature. Minister, thank you for coming on today.
6: Good morning, Mike. How are you?
0: I'm doing great. I'm, I'm very grateful to you for coming on to discuss this today. Also on the line is Peter Millobar, Liberal MLA, Kamloops, North Thompson. Hey, Peter. Good morning. Thanks for having me on. Okay, thank you to both of you. Minister, let me go to you first. I mean, we heard your voice there in, in the legislature. Can you explain to the listeners why the government is cancelling this deficit holdback here?
6: Well, first of all, I think it's really important to, to point out uh, that Peter Milibar and, and the BC Liberals keep talking about a pay raise. It's not a pay raise. The salary formula for cabinet members is the same as it was five years ago. That has not changed. And the previous... A government put in a mechanism to penalize ministers who wouldn't cut services in their ministry. And we have removed that system. We've made unprecedented investments over the last number of years to support people. It's the right thing to do. And we still have, as I said in question period, we still have a 10% holdback measure to ensure that ministers stay within their budgets yeah. that will uh, ensure good financial management by each minister to control spending within their within their ministries.
0: Okay. Peter Milibar, what do you
4: say to that? Well, first off, this was brought in because as a response to the budget budgets the last time the NDP were in government, in fact, they started initiating the discussion around this and it got finalized when we became government, uh, 77 to 2 government, I might add. Uh, the problem is it is a pay raise. Anytime you change the rules of your employment to wind up with more money in your bank account for doing the same job you're currently doing with less accountability, that's a pay raise. Uh, and thirdly, um, you know, they could have easily put in a provision, they've, they've put in provisions in the same bill uh, to, to say they won't have balanced budgets up through 2425, they could have suspended the hold back until 2425 and revisited it that instead they've got rid of the hold back in perpetuity and the most egregious part is they've actually backdated it. So Carol James had no problems with the hold back. Carol James had no problems with balanced budgets and things of that nature. It only seems to be this finance minister who literally Ooh. wants to make sure they get paid from day one that she was on the job.
0: Okay, minister. So yeah. minister.
6: Let me yeah. just let me just say, I just came off an, a, a media avail where Kevin Falcon and the BC Liberals back in 2002, in order to get their hold back, they cut services to sexual assault centers. They cut $2 million Thirty-seven sexual assault centers closed. Women who were raped, women who were um, victims of assault, they had nowhere to turn. And why did the BC Liberals do that? Kevin Falcon says, well, it wasn't fun, but we had to do it. We had to right-size government. Let me tell you, it wasn't fun. They made those choices that hurt women and children so that they could collect their holdbacks. That's a terrible incentive. I think it's destructive to the people of British Columbia. And our government will not uh, use that as an incentive to do the right thing.
0: Peter Milibar, what do you say to that?
4: Well, this is the sixth budget uh, under this NDP government. This has never come up before uh, this budget. It was brought in in budget 2022-2023 yet it's dated to take effect starting April first, twenty 2021. It's retroactive. It's retroactive to when hard decisions needed to start being made. They could have easily explained with, with COVID measures, by the way, the $5 billion extra we, we supported unanimously as well to go in for COVID supports uh, to put us into deficit. They could have easily put a time limitation on that to explain it as being attached uh, to emergency uh, spending provisions, but that's not what they've done. And, and the most egregious part is their retroactive pay, their extra $5,600 a minister and $9,000 for the premier will be in their bank accounts long before you see any of your ICBC rebate check was supposed to help affordability for people. Okay.
6: Again, he's okay. you're okay with cutting services to women experiencing sexual assault so that ministers could collect their holdback? I think that's a terrible incentive. Because you're penalized if you didn't balance the budget, but yet that's a decision that the BC Liberals made. They also cut supports for, for families that needed um, childcare supports. 10,500 families suffered as a result of that. They made a, a range of other cuts that hurt people, so that they could collect their holdback. I think that's a terrible frame what for making good decisions for people.
0: Minister, what kind of cuts would be required right now? Like, let's say the government decided, okay, we're going to balance the budget here, come hell or high water, so we can pocket our entire salary and not and not suffer this holdback penalty. Like, what kind of what kind of program cuts would be required in order to balance the budget right now? <laughs>
6: Well, well, based on based on the third quarter results, we're, we have a deficit uh, of, of 480 some odd million, so that would be very significant. That would be cuts to schools. So that would be cuts. Cuts. Uh, you know, we wouldn't be able to support sexual assault centers like we did in this in this last, last budget. Finally, we're able to 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 re- repair that. We wouldn't be able to deliver services for children aging out of care for youth aging out of care. We wouldn't be able to do that. To support them, we wouldn't be able to deliver um, uh, services for people who are homeless. We wouldn't—we'd have to certainly cut back on, on schools. I can't imagine that we'd be able to sustain that. Those are those are things that we depend on. A healthcare, yeah. like, let's be really clear, healthcare needs are long term care. Like, there's there's lots of of services that are that are needed. We're doing, you know, we're doing what needs to be done to support people through a really rough time. Okay. We think that's the right thing to do. Having any kind of holdback provision, no other province has this. It mm. doesn't exist anywhere else in this nation, and and I want to point out we still have a ten percent holdback if you don't meet your targets as a minister for your year. So there is still there is still an accountability piece in there
0: okay, uh, Peter, to make Peter sure Mil- that people do that. Liberal MLA Peter Millibar, go ahead. Look,
4: all governments make decisions. Uh, some are some are better than others, and some you look back on and say, "I wish I wish we had done things a different way." The reality was in O two, uh, there was a massive financial mess. You, you can't just print money at will uh, to, to no end. This government has had to make decisions. I, I would note that this minister has had uh, the four hundred dollars renter rebate in her mandate letter for two budgets now. Yet, despite the ability to run deficits. We don't see that anywhere in this budget, so she's made a decision, not to fund renters' rebates, and that's understandable. The bottom line is they've decided to give themselves a raise. They could have made those decisions still if they were willing to, to eat their hold back. but I guess as ministers, uh, this government is saying that their pay packet is, is more important. Um sure. to be honest no, actually, about actually, it and sure put the a thing- timeline on it. Peter, Minister, providing
6: ahead. services providing services for people is everything that we're doing as a government it is the number one priority making sure that there are programs there for particularly the most vulnerable women who've experienced sexual assault i can't imagine having sat around that cabinet table I just i'm trying to imagine in 2002 what what kevin falcon and the cabinet were thinking we need 2 million dollars keep 37 sexual assault centers open in Kamloops, in Kelowna, in Vancouver, in Surrey. Oh, we are we have to make sure that, that we collect our holdback. Therefore, we won't give them the $2 million. Mostly volunteers, they need a little bit of money, and the choice was made to not fund that.
4: So he, that was so terrible
6: Mike, decision-making. Mike,
4: I- Mike, I wasn't there 20 years ago, neither was the minister. I'm sure 20 years from now, just as we are in current time, we're going to look back on NDP government decisions and say these ones were really flawed, and and really, I'm sure the NDP wishes they had a do-over on some of those. The fact that the minister is trying to justify something from 20 years ago when they have been government for a quarter of that time frame have never brought this up before, bring it in in the budget at a time of record inflation for average working people and make it retroactive. If the minister can't understand how people are shaking their heads at at this government's action on this, um, that is shocking in and of itself.
0: Minister, go ahead.
6: 20 years ago, I was sitting with women who were experiencing the fact that they couldn't find the supports that they needed. That's what I was doing 20 years ago. I was holding them, listening to them crying, and helping them to try to find resources that no longer existed. And that is the, the risk of this kind of legislation that says my hold back is more important to me than taking care of people of British Columbia. We've eliminated that because we believe anyone who runs for office should always be putting the needs
0: of British Columbians first. Peter Peter Milibar, fi- final question to you. Are you saying that if the Liberals were to co- return to power, let's say after the next election and Kevin Falcon is, is the premier, you guys would bring back this salary? hold back, and then if you don't balance the budget, you'd take a 10% pay cut? Is that the policy of the Liberal Party here right now?
4: Well, if you look at our track record in 2008 with the world uh, uh, economic crash, we, we suspended balanced budgets, but we didn't suspend the holdbacks. Uh, this government, under the backdrop of a pandemic, has decided to do the double whammy. What they have done, though, is they've, they've added an end date to balanced budget, twenty four twenty five, and then they'll revisit that portion but they've made the holdback uh, provision indefinite, which means so, they want to guarantee regardless. So is we, that a yes? We have a long history and track record of supporting this. We obviously brought this legislation in. It's about trying to make sure you stay within a fiscal framework that long-term the public can actually uh, uh, get behind now, depending on what the books look like by 2024. Uh, the timeline that we could be back to a balanced budget, even this government saying 24, 25, they won't be in, in out of deficit. Uh, that will be part of the okay. conversation, but it's fundamentally something we have never opposed to having in place.
0: Minister, a brief reply from you, and then we're out of time. Go ahead.
6: Well, I, I just want to point out that Peter didn't answer your question um, uh, because I think you know he did. He, cho- he chose not to because I think he agrees. It's a terrible piece of legislation. It doesn't uh, um, incent in the right way. We have 10% holdback. Each minister is responsible for managing within their own budgets, their own decision-making. They have to be accountable for that. We expect them to be accountable for that, and that's there, so that continues.
0: All right, welcome back to the show. Let's talk about interest rates on the rise in Canada. Man, you knew this was coming. The Bank of Canada key interest rate was hiked yesterday by 50 basis points, so it's going up to 1%. 1% is the central bank interest rate uh, announced yesterday. This is the largest increase in some time yeah, it doesn't sound like a whole lot, right? 1% could go higher maybe in the days ahead. What kind of impact does this have for you and for the economy? Let's discuss with my guest, Michael Devereaux. He's an economist at UBC. Hey, Michael. Hello, Mike. Uh, nice to meet you. Thanks a lot for coming on today. What do you think okay. of this, in, this interest rate hike? Like, why is the central bank hiking interest rates right now?
5: Well, it was very, very clearly predicted uh, when the inflation numbers for February came in. We saw that uh, the inflation rate was way, way higher than the bank's uh, target rate of around two percent. The latest numbers are closer to six percent, and they'll probably get a bit worse as as things uh, develop this year. So, the bank, I think, really had no choice uh, but to raise interest rates. Uh, They were already very, very low uh, since the COVID pandemic, they reduced interest rates to just a quarter of a percent, 0.25, 25 uh, 25 basis points. And then in February, they increased it by 25. But then they saw that inflation had picked up a lot more than they anticipated and that anyone really had had anticipated. So, um, you know, the the bank's job is to maintain a target rate of around two, two percent on average. And uh, increasing interest rates will hopefully, uh, you know, temper down the inflation pressures.
0: Right. So it would, I guess the bottom line is it would encourage people to save more, maybe discouraged over, over borrowing and overspending. And that would Ex- slow, d- slow exactly, down inflation. Yeah.
5: yeah, exactly. Mike. That's the thing. So, you know, this will impact on uh, the, uh, the cost of maintaining a mortgage uh, yeah. so that, you know, Basically, we're seeing now probably mortgage rates will go up by at least 1% because there's a bit of a multiple effect, you know, when interest rates go up a half a percent from the bank, then mortgage rates go up a bit more than that. So you know the the average mortgage balance in uh, Vancouver, as far as I can figure out from the data, is about six hundred thousand. So an increase of one uh, percent on that carrying rate is you know is an increase of you know six 000, eight thousand dollars a year uh, on uh, to, to carry a mortgage that that. Amount and so that will inevitably uh, cut back on on that. Also, you know, consumer credit, car loans, everything is going to be more expensive. So that will cut back demand.
0: Right. Speaking to Michael Devereaux from UBC about rising interest rates in Canada. What about the uh, the overall economy? What What does a uh, increased interest rates do to economic activity across the country?
5: Well, you know, that's the thing. Uh, right now, we have a very very robust economy. And that's one of the reasons we have these inflationary pressures. Uh, Job growth is at a high. Unemployment is at an all time low. There's vacancies all over the place. You know, you can see, uh, uh, you know, staff wanted signs uh, everywhere. Uh, The ferries, for instance, you know, are short of staff. They need to hire. So we we have a very strong growth. uh, And now that's, uh, you know, the situation is probably that the economy is a bit overheated and that's that's pushing up inflation. Of course, inflation is not coming just from domestic uh, uh, channels. We also have a lot of you know international problems with Russia, Ukraine and food prices and energy prices and so forth. But, um, you know, the uh, the interest rate hike will probably slow down the economy a bit. And, and that's in some sense the aim of the bank because they they think that the economy is kind of you know running too hot in some sense and that's pushing up inflation. Now the key uh, you know trade-off, the, the key balancing act for the for the bank is that they don't want to raise interest rates uh, too much too fast uh, so and kill the golden goose of of a, of a of a good economy. They don't want to generate a recession. So they're, you know, uh, they're signaling very, very clearly that, you know, interest rates will go up, uh, but they are, you know, are playing this tightrope act uh, so that they hopefully won't go up too much to to uh, turn things around in, in the real economy.
0: Right. Lots of concerns about the inflation rate in Canada, which hit 5.7 percent in February. It's the highest level of inflation. We've seen it in a long time. In the United States, inflation running even higher, and I guess potential for inflation to continue to increase here in Canada. Do you think that there'll be more interest rates, interest rate increases by the central bank in the days ahead? Oh,
5: without a doubt, without a doubt. The central bank have what they call a neutral rate, which is Uh, a a target interest rate that they expect would uh, keep inflation on track uh, at around 2%. And that neutral rate would be about 2.5%. So over the next year or maybe 18 months, we'll probably see interest rates drift up to around that. Now, that wouldn't be, you know, too bad uh, because that's almost where we were before the pandemic. So the fact is, you know, interest rates are at a very low level still, like 1% is, you know, is pretty low interest rate. The the problem is, though, that a lot of people, you know, because of this frothy housing market, a lot of people have taken out large mortgages based on the expectation that their carrying costs would be uh, determined by this super low interest rate. Now, that's probably not going to be the case. And so there's no question some people will be hurt by this, people who have uh, very large outstanding mortgages.
0: Okay, we're going to watch it very closely to say the least. Thank you for coming on with your thoughts on it today. Okay, thank you very much, Mike.